welcome to the Atlanta Tennis Podcast. Every episode is titled, It Starts With Tennis and Goes From There. We talk with coaches, club managers, industry business professionals, technology experts, and anyone else we find interesting. We want to have a conversation as long as it starts with tennis. Hey, hey, this is Sean with the Atlanta Tennis Podcast, powered by Go Tennis. In this episode, we talk to Billy Pate, who is the head men's tennis coach at Princeton University. We talk about his friendship with Bobby, the Atlanta Thunder, world team tennis, the state of college athletics, and more. Have a listen and let us know what you think. So I'm going to do a a nice, simple introduction of Billy Pate. You are the head coach, head men's coach at Princeton University for tennis. And that is as much as I know. So what I want to do is say, Billy, will you introduce yourself? And I'm going to let you and Bobby talk for a while. Yeah, great. Well, hey, I really appreciate you guys having me on. And uh, Sean, nice to meet you. And Bobby, obviously, it's great to catch up after a few years here. And uh, good to see you. But I'm I'm in my 11th year at uh, at Princeton uh, as the men's coach. I've uh, been coaching college tennis, I think, for, gosh, about 28, 29 years. So I'm getting to be one of the older guys. I used to be one of the younger guys in the business, but now I think I'm one of the senior guys. But uh, anyway, it's been a fun ride, and um, I just appreciate you guys having me on and anxious to talk to you and see what we can uncover here. Well, Bill, it's great seeing you, too. It's funny, you know, Sean – we always prepare questions for everybody. You were kind enough to, to prepare some questions for us. And I told Sean, I said, I have to make this a little bit personal just because the shocking, as you mentioned a couple minutes ago, we've known each other more than 30 years now. Yep. It's it's a long time. And, and I tell everybody, and I, I don't know if I ever told you, I just remember meeting you. I started, I think, a quarter before you. We were in grad school together at Georgia State. I think I started the quarter before you. We were in some summer class. I believe that's when you began. And I noticed this. We were having a group discussion and this the chair coming closer and closer to me. And I look over and I see this person. And I said, after you said about five words, I said, oh, my God, this is somebody I'm going to know for the rest of my life. And the impact, when you get right to it, you, you sit there and say, I don't want this to be about me, but I, I got to share this. Billy essentially has shaped my life. You can sit there and say, you know, people have had an impact. Yes, I went to grad school. I want we wanted to be in the sports side of business, but Billy got me playing tennis again. Billy got me my first job in tennis. Through Billy, we met, you know, had great times with the Atlanta Thunder. Through Billy, I met great guys from Mississippi State. I mean, we we had an apartment where five people lived, and it was me and four bulldogs. And, you know, had great times personally and professionally. So do you sit there and sit there? One person had an impact. I would say, Billy, you probably had the biggest impact on my life outside of parents that you could possibly have. And since I'm, I pretty much enjoy my life, I, I want to thank you for it because it's been a fun ride. <laughs> well, that's a really, really kind, Bobby. I had no idea that it was to that extent. Um, I just remember um, us being roommates in uh, grad school and, uh dragging me out to the tennis court I decided to start hitting balls again I think after college I was a little burnout as as you said we were all going to be sports professionals I was probably not thinking I would be in the tennis space actually I I really wanted to be in um you know maybe the NFL as a PR person or even athletic administration be a director of athletics 
not that I now seeing the way college athletics go on, I wouldn't want to do that today. But um, but no, I remember dragging out to the tennis court and uh and and rem it was remarkable how well you could hit for a guy that didn't have an extensive playing background and uh, you had incredible technique. And so um, it was really fun. We, we started hitting a little bit and I think you, you kind of got the bug again and, and realized, you know, you're in a perfect spot. And so was I that Atlanta in the, um, you know, I know it's still to this day, but I think particularly in the early nineties when we were there um, and the start of this venture, it, um, it, it was just booming in tennis. I mean, you would go out and buck at it and you'd meet people. And, you know, if you're a, a, a tennis pro, you, you might have the same respect as a, a doctor. <laughs> it was kind of, it was kind of a strange, it was a, a unique uh, place. And I know it still is and with Alta and the uh, passion for tennis, but um, yeah, that was, that was a fun time and a great memory. It's funny now, I saw that you guys just recently played Navy and I know Will Seagrave's son plays on Navy and Will was somebody we used to hang out with in Buckhead and now you're coaching against his son. So I was like, oh my gosh, yeah, the, the time marches on. Yeah, that's funny. I've had so many uh, people that I um, were, I guess, contemporaries of mine who all their kids are coming up. Um, and, you know, a lot of times if they're, especially if they're academic, you know, they'll reach out and it's a great reason to catch up with these, um, you know, good friends. I haven't talked in years, but their kids are of age. Maybe they're looking at Ivy League schools, maybe not even for an athletic spot, but maybe just, uh, to, you know, just want some information or doing tours. Or um, I've had a lot of, um, you know, Ken Small uh, Jr.'s son, uh, you remember, uh, he's, um, he, he was a good football player. He ended up going to Georgia and not playing football, but he had offers to go Ivy. And so he did the tour. So it's been, it's been great to even be up here. There's been a, a deep connection with a lot of friends, but it just, again, shows my age. I've been doing this a long time where the, my friend's kids are in college now. So. <laughs> well, right. well, let's go back because it's always fun when you become a coach, people forget that you were on a darn good Mississippi state tennis team. <clears throat> yeah, that was, it was really fun. You know, we, when I, um, I actually ended up, as you know, going to high school in Starkville and, um, so it was sort of a natural, I, I, I went there, um, and, um, ended up when, when we, when I first started, we weren't great. You know, we were, um, I think building a pretty good team. Um, and then, you know, by the time I, I left, we were a really good team, pretty much a top 10 team. And then from that point on, um, you know, Mississippi state's been really, um, super competitive nationally in tennis. And a lot of French guys came in fact, uh, my, um, again, going back, uh, one of the guys I picked up at the airport, my, uh, January, my senior year who helped us really make that push to be great. His son came and work for me, you know, so uh, last, a uh, couple of years. So, um, and he's in coaching, so it's, it's funny, but yeah, we were, it was a great, uh, great program. It was really fun. And, um, like I said, then I, you know, wanted to get a master's and that's how we met and moved to Atlanta. And um, it was a great time to be there. And, um, you know, and of course we had the pro league in Atlanta at the time too, which was really successful. So it kind of got me back into tennis after kind of a little bit of hiatus, because I, like I said, I was sort of burnt out. We had such a good program, but I was like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go pro. I did play a few pro events, but I'm, I'm just going to focus on my career and uh, but then I sort of Atlanta drug me back into tennis to be honest with you so it's really cool well Sean the first time we played again talking about the old days of Atlanta Billy's like well I live out here where, where did you what exit did you live off of when we first the first apartment you had 
Yeah, Northridge exit on Dunwoody. Yeah, going up Georgia 400. That's before the toll was even there. You know, you had to you had to enter. Uh, I think 400 North there, right at the at the top end of the perimeter in Sandy Springs. Yeah. So I had been in Atlanta six months. I had never been outside the perimeter until then. So he was the apps. You know, I had heard about OTP, and when I went to see Bill, I was like, "Where in God are we?" You know, because my the buddy of mine that I went to TCU with, who was the one who was my introduction to Atlanta, he lived in town. So I was very familiar with in town. And the first time I went out and I remember we were going to hit and I went out with my Prince 110 aluminums and Billy looked at him and said, oh, my God, it has been a long time since you played and immediately gave me two of his rackets out of his bag. He said, here, keep these. You'll need them. So immediately, you know, the kindness was was very well evident. And then, obviously, should we go even – you brought up Ken Small. So Atlanta Thunder was another fun, very tennis-oriented experience for all of us. Yeah, that was great. You know, I um, again, that's probably what really drew me back into tennis. They had a, um, they had a uh, opening for like a facility manager, operations director. And, you know, working for the World Team Tennis, uh, and I'm sure it's, it's the same today, but it's like working for a minor league baseball team and you, you do a little bit of everything, which is actually really cool. Like if you go work in professional sports, you're an intern, you're probably in a very specific space where, you know, working there and, you know, Ken Sr., uh, the owner of the Atlanta Thunder at the time, he also did the Kuppenheimer Classic um that was also kind of his bread and butter with um it was a one-day basketball doubleheader and it used to be in the um where the hawks played the old omni and then it became in the in the georgia dome and the, it's crazy to think the georgia dome is gone now and it's a, the mercedes arena so um but uh yeah so that was a really fun time getting a chance to do anything and if you what i really valued about that experience is um you know got to get back in tennis but also um, Ken Sr. was, if, if you, even if you were an intern or, a, you know, a, a first year employee, if you had an idea, a marketing idea, promotional idea, um, a lead on a corporate sponsorship, which we obviously all needed, he was all ears. And we, we'd spend many hours at the old beer mug. I know it's not there anymore, but um, off Peachtree Road there, that was an amazing place. I'm, I was really saddened when I heard that closed uh, years back, but We'd have our, our meetings late into the night there, brainstorming ideas. And the funny thing about the Thunder, um, we actually joked it, it became, you know, Thunder became synonymous with rain because every time, and I've really felt bad for Ken. I mean, you know, he had put his money into this and um, and it was hard enough to draw crowds to watch tennis in Atlanta, which seems counterintuitive. But Bobby, as you know, um, even with the AT&T uh, challenge for many years, and of course the event is uh, the truest event that Eddie Gonzalez has uh, run for many years. I know he just uh, kind of retired from that, moving to a different venture, but he did a great job. But it, I know it's a challenge in Atlanta. to You have to have the, the marquee names to really get people to come because we always said this, people want to play tennis in Atlanta more than they want to watch unless you have a marquee name. Um, 50 in the world doesn't always attract um, the, the fans in Atlanta, but we we had that issue. But of course, we had legends, like we had Navratilova play for years with a thunder and board came in, had some uh, really fun with them, working with them. And, um, and we, we were drawing well when it didn't rain, but there was, I remember just being for two seasons in a row, I think, you know, more than 50% of the um, matches would get rain in the summer. You know, it'd be a seven o'clock Tuesday night in Atlanta. All of a sudden the, the showers would come and it was very bad time. You're unfortunate, but, but those were really fun times. It was uh, sometimes it was like Keystone cops running around when they were painted, trying to find another venue or, 
what we were going to do, but it was a really, really fun time in my life for sure. It was, and you're right. I mean, you think about when I first got to Atlanta, I swore because of the summer of, of 94 and 95 that, as you said, every day at five o'clock, it just rained. Yeah. It, I mean, 95 was horrible. I remember because my brother came down and my Billy got my brother an internship at, with the, with the thunder and so my parents came down to visit us and literally we were inside the entire time they were here because it rained so yeah nine, summer of 95 yes was absolutely horrendous when it came to the weather which made it and you know and you brought up an interesting point because i don't think the smalls get enough credit because they really started that trend with the cuppenheimer classic as well you know that weekend before christmas basketball tournament ucla co-opted nbc took it over but, you know, they were the first ones to do it. And it was a great, great thing. Yeah. Ken had some great marketing ideas and, uh, you know, things sometimes work for a reason. Sometimes they don't. Um, obviously, this is well before social media. What what could we have done with social media? Um, you know, but what was cool, though, is I remember the last year um, that I was involved with the Kuppenheimer um, and it, the Olympics were on the way. And that was one of the excitements. You know, then we go back. That's. When I moved to Atlanta, I'm sure you thinking the same thing coming from TCU, the Olympics had already been announced clearly years before. Everybody was building toward the Olympics. I think we tend to forget how big that buildup was. Everybody wanted to be in Atlanta in sports and work for ACOG, which was the Olympic Committee for uh, Atlanta Games. And um, it was it was what was really funny. I did a little side note here that I think people might find humorous, you know, with my name was very close to the guy that was the executive director of the Olympic Games, which is Billy Payne. You know, of course, he was uh, the top guy at um, at uh, the Masters at uh, the club there in Augusta. And um, but I would call people to try to get maybe a corporate sponsorship for the Thunder, or the Cup Number Classic, and and I would be patched right through because the 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 receptionist wouldn't understand. She would think I'm Billy Payne when said. Billy Pate. So I just started kind of saying my last name really quick and hoping they did think I was Billy Payne. And many times, like, oh, Mr. Payne, I'll put you right through. And they're like, oh, this is easy. So um, so that was that was a funny thing back then. We were, <laughs> it was it was quite a time though, but the buildup was great with the uh, Olympics on the way and um, just everybody. I, I think it really put Atlanta too. I mean, obviously when you you host the Olympic Games, that's a that's a major international venue, but but it really was it put Atlanta sports on the map and so many good things happened after that. And Sean, you have to we were so involved because we were in grad school. We had it, we created a program with the sports council of Atlanta where we essentially did all the logistics for each monthly sports council meeting. Plus, we had all of our fellow students in various internships in very so we were the guys to know you know you wanted tickets you wanted to meet this one we knew somebody everywhere as billy said plus that was like what 90 obviously the braves were in the world series or playoffs every year i think that was 95 first super bowl that came to atlanta which was the cowboys which billy and i are big cowboy fans so we were excited to have the cowboys here in the super bowl so that time in atlanta in our age group was a blast and just being part such a part of it you know we knew everybody we knew the the head of the sports council was a friend who'd go out with us you know it was it was a really really great time our other roommate craig hoover who's still vice president of live nation you know he was with ProServe, and then who, who bought them what was the radio conglomerate that bought ProServe? i know then live nation bought them but there was another entity in between but craig's been with them 30 years 
Yeah. Yeah. No, it's really, really cool. The people we met and what they're doing in sports. And, you know, the, the, the other thing that's kind of interesting, and um, this was more, you, you studied to be a sports professional. That was the start of it, you know, really, I mean, obviously, you know, we, Ohio U, I think um, was the first um, yes. college in the U S that had a, a master's in sports administration, sports management, uh, what have you. And, um, but a lot of them were glorified PE departments, but, you know, Georgia State did a really good job of attracting some of the top uh, budding sports professionals. And that's what drew us to Atlanta. And that, it was such a good time. And and now it's a little bit different. I think people are, are getting more specific with the spaces they study. Maybe you see more of a trend. The guys go get an MBA to work in Major League Baseball or what. What, but but we really studied sport. I mean, it, it wasn't as common back then. It was uh, more, um, I remember telling my my grandparents, hey, I'm going to study sports administration as a master's. Like, what is that, PE? And like, no, not, not exactly. <laughs> and then my grandma like, are you going to be a coach? I'm like, no, no, I'm going to be more than a coach. You know, now yeah. I've been a coach for a long time, but it's, it's funny. But it, it, you, you do have to, even coaching, you need to understand all the, um, the size of what's going on in, in um, college and pro sports. It, it's super important, I think. So again, we could, you and I personally, we could talk forever. So let, let's go your timeline, coaching, your first coaching job, Georgia Perimeter, am I correct? Yeah, yeah. And that's another sad one. And going back down Mary Lang, you know, that was um, a really beautiful campus. I, you know, since then, I think you guys know it's been absorbed, I believe, by Georgia State. That happened, I don't know, roughly about like five or six years ago. And, um, you know, I, I think it's a little bit sad, too, from the, the community colleges uh, have really uh, decreased and and you know they're um you look back and what community colleges did for a lot of students that maybe couldn't afford school and um it, it was I, I really sort of again going back I, I sort of backed into coaching I wasn't that's not what I was looking to do but I just finished my master's I was offered a position there to to teach in the as an adjunct professor in the um in the uh PE department and but um and also coach the tennis team and it, it wasn't a lot of money and so I I you know, get a chance to mentor a lot of young up and coming college coaches today. And, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're in a different, you know, such a different generation. They're expecting a lot of money and you can make a little money in, in, in tennis, but not a whole lot. You're not going to get super wealthy, but, but they're demanding good salaries and they're getting them. And I remember starting out what I was making at Georgia perimeter it was more of a stipend, like coaching a high school team. And then, but I've made decent money teaching like, like we all did. And, um, but I was probably, you know, running around, you know, like 60, 70 hours a week working, but I loved it. We were young, we could do it, but that was my first gig. And I really, um, in terms of coaching college and, um, but the good part about it, it had a beautiful facility, you know, there's, they were spread out all over, um, Atlanta, but I was at the Dunwoody campus. We had 10 courts, um, you know, we could run out the programs. We could run, um, all kind of instruction. I had some of my guys would, get all, all practice and go help with the junior academy there that we had. I mean, there was so many good things going. So it was a great location to be. And so it, it, I, I look back with great fondness, but it got me going to want to coach. And we, then we ended up my last, I was here five years, but my last three years, we were fortunate enough to win the national title in my last three years. And so, um, and then at that point I was 30 and I was like, well, I really like doing this. I don't want to coach Alta for 40 hours a week just to, pay the bills, you know, I'd rather do this a hundred percent. And, um, and, you know, I, I sort of bypassed all the other, you know, career paths I might've had and just said, you know, I'm, I'm all in on this. And so, and then I got an offer to go to Notre Dame to be the assistant and, um, work for an incredible guy. Who's probably my main mentor in, you know, life now, you know, coach Bayless. And, um, it was a great experience there. Yeah. 
I think I, that I think speaks volumes too. That that was a great decision. Where somebody in your position coming off three national championships, we worked with somebody who you know shot a little higher. You were smart enough to go as an assistant. And you, how long were you at Notre Dame? Two years. Yeah, two years. Yeah. So yeah, I mean that was a great. And then and then on to Alabama. Yeah, then ten years at Alabama, and then uh, now eleven years uh, here. Yeah. Oh Lord, we are old. God, it's been. It's, <laughs> I remember when you could. I remember we were excited when Alabama was building the new facility. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been through a, a lot of uh, facility uh, construction. It seems Alabama. We did two different venues. We did a an outdoor first uh, right after I arrived, and then we did an. Um, an indoor, which is actually a funny story, and I'll give it to you. And they were building a, a, a nice facility here, a new facility. We, um, everything, you know, they, they kind of happen for the same reasons, both at Alabama and Princeton. You know, you do construction, you, you start to get sprawl, or you just like a city does, or you need more space. Or, um, um, but it was funny that the story at Alabama when I, uh, when Saving came in, um, and everybody was excited, obviously. I think we saw the opportunity that, um, Saving was going to bring. Uh, Alabama had kind of been down in the dumps a little bit on probation and football. And, and, and as you know, and I'm, I'm talking as a college tennis coach, but any, any coach in that department would say, Hey, look, we need football to be the driver here. I mean, especially a place like Alabama with a tradition. And I was all in on that as well. So we had a four court indoor facility, Alabama, which was one of the earlier indoor facilities in college tennis. It was built in 83 where the old coach Ray Perkins, wife loved, tennis so she went to the president was able to get that it shared space with the indoor football complex at alabama and it was a really high roof so you could actually punt in it so you imagine the tennis it was you could you couldn't really hit the, the ceiling with a loft but it was a pretty cool four-court venue but a massive wall and on the other side there was a football practice football field turf field and uh it stopped at the five-yard line when it hit that wall and then the other side went through the end zone so technically it was like 105 yards not 120. Well, Saban does his first uh, tour um, in uh, the the venue, and they're showing him around. He's been obviously well received. They're you know showing the facilities like, hey, what do we need to do? And and he's walking through this turf, and he I think he likes it, but he gets to the wall and goes, "What's on the other side of this wall?" And, and they say, "Well, it's um, indoor varsity tennis." And he goes, in nicely, I think he goes, "Move them, give them something, but move them." And um, and but but you know, and I would I would. Coach Saban today, and this this was a great thing because I mean he probably knew. I mean he, he needed his space, but but also we needed our space, and and so we got to build a new six court indoor, which is beautiful. Um, and we did that before I I left there, but but it, yeah, really um really cool how these things happen. And the same thing at Princeton right now. We you know they wanted to build a residential college. We need to increase enrollment a little bit. Everybody lives on campus, and it's just kind of tied on campus. So we're moving across the lake. On uh, a beautiful space, and we're under construction now on an indoor-outdoor venue here that's going to be state-of-the-art. So I've kind of seen how these these things work, and you sort of roll with it, and and maybe you get something better. It's always good. It's always good. And my last tangent, because we're going to have her on tomorrow without Billy, I I don't meet PMJ, and those those initials were infamous back in the day, and and now she's somebody that I've done business with and know, and have grown close with the family over the years. And we'll we'll get her to speak to you about you a bit tomorrow. But again, another impact player in my life and a, another close friend of ours, CD. We had a great year last year. Bulldogs won the college baseball World Series. 
and TCU, well, you know, we, we know what happened to TCU, but at least they made it to the finals, which, you know, considering where they started from when I was a freshman, where they didn't, I think they won one game to making it to the national championship game. That was enough for me. So, but through Billy, I met PMJ too. So it's, Billy's been very instrumental as we got over. All right, Billy, we were in college athletics. You've been doing it for 25, 27 years now. Tell us, what, what do you feel about the state of college athletics with the landscape changing, with NIL, transfer portal, conference realignment? Obviously, NIL had a big impact on TCU's success. So I wanted to know, how's it affecting tennis in a positive way? And what are some of the fallbacks? Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, it's varied, and, and it, unless you're living under a rock, I mean, we've we've had seismic changes in college athletics, and it it, it really um, trickles down, and it affects every program. You know, whatever program you are, golf, track and field, volleyball, um, you know, softball, it doesn't matter. And particularly that we call ourselves Olympic sports or non-revenue sports. Um, you know, I, I think one of the biggest things I saw a really good article yesterday about the a lot of people and this is all phases of life us blaming the pandemic for things. OK, and and I think college athletics is probably um, one of the biggest violators of that you saw programs being dropped and, and, and not just college tennis programs, but a lot of non-revenue programs because. We a lot of administrators, uh, quite frankly, freaked out and they thought, OK, we're going to we're going to lose so much during the pandemic. And, and yeah, there were some there were some losses, but I think they could have mitigated those losses. They could have uh, found other um, ways to keep programs, you know, like uh, Minnesota and Iowa men's tennis dropped and they were in good shape. There were very strong programs and obviously in the Big Ten. And that's really sad. And I know, you know, it gets more into the sometimes a Title IX discussion. Um, but I, I think there's ways to, um, you know, people come to the table and, and figure out what's what. But um, yeah, I think it's it's really interesting with a portal. Um, it, just looking at a college basketball right now, we're entering the final four. Um, there's teams that maybe we, a lot of the commentators have made a point that these mid-major teams like a Florida Atlantic, you know, a Creighton, some of these that are really doing well, maybe they're actually the ones that are benefiting from the portal more because sometimes you, you think it's going to be the bigger schools, but a lot of the kids, the athletes, and this could be in tennis as well. They come to the power fives first. Maybe it doesn't work out. Maybe it's not all it's cracked up to be. You have all the bells and whistles with facilities and funding and travel and all these things for you, but maybe you're not playing or maybe the, the coaches are a little bit too much for you, whatever it may be. And so you see kids just jump in the portal. Um, you know, from our standpoint, we don't have that problem for the most part at Princeton because once you get into Princeton, that's kind of your, you know, say meal ticket, but you, you, you value that opportunity you get in an Ivy league institution. You're not generally going to transfer. Um, now what we had is we couldn't play, um, there's an Ivy policy where you can't do graduate school in the Ivy and play intercollegiate athletics. So when everybody got this COVID year, all of, I've got two guys playing for UNC right now. Um, they're a top 10 team. They're doing great for them. We'd love to have them. It's kind of sad to watch them flourish in another place, but that's just kind of been the reality. Some of the basketball players that, you know, start on Princeton's uh, Sweet 16 team, if they want, they've got that COVID year. If they're graduating this year, they can go somewhere else that we have a player in Michigan, in fact, on the basketball team there. So so it's happening in all but it is just obviously that's going to go away soon. That's going to cycle through with that extra year that COVID granted um, those athletes. But 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 back to the, the bigger issue, you know, I just think we're um, everybody's putting money into football, as you know, and a place like yours, TCU, they're they're doing really well. And then that money can 
come and support all the other programs. But what the argument is, and you know this, like if you have a, uh, a football team that's trying to compete at the top level, but you're not really the Alabama, the Ohio State, the LSU's, the Clemson really have the money that's drawing a lot of fans. It could be a money loss for you, obviously. And then that that impacts all the non-revenue sports. So so for us, and I'm, I put college tennis in with all these other non-revenue sports. I mean, we're we're trying to find our place. We're trying to um, do things in college tennis to preserve uh, what we have, but 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 also uh, build and and try to think a little bit more uh, innovatively in terms of how we can promote ourselves more. And um, and be um, you know valuable in a department's eyes and and not be on the chopping block you know and I think if we keep going to where it's just football and basketball based um, that's that's a sad story to tell and that's not why we have college athletics so anyway I get off on my uh, little tangent there myself but um, I, I firmly believe what all the coaches in non revenue sports are doing and maybe without the limelight. And um, I think there's a lot of things we're concerned about in college athletics that we need to sort of rally around and protect and also think creatively about how we're going to operate in the future. I think the good part is through challenges come innovation. And I think a lot of the non-revenue producing sports have had to get a little bit more creative to create revenue, to get people to come out and it you know it, it helps the entire college experience. So you, you have an interesting background that you've been in in Alabama, and now you're in an Ivy League school. Obviously, big difference. Speak to some of the, the differences between those two entities. Yeah, yeah, no, I think it, they are very different, but they're also uh, a lot more similar than people think. I mean, they're, they're, there's, a, there's their own sort of tradition. Alabama's a big brand, Princeton's a big brand. So how do you leverage those brands, you know? And I think what what, um, the thing is with Princeton, I think you, from an athletic, just a purely athletic standpoint, what we just did in men's basketball is, is tremendous. And women's basketball won a game too. They've been very good. And that's, that's, that's really visible as well. But for, for the men's team to make the Sweet 16, everybody kind of rallies around March Madness with these smaller teams, right? I say smaller, mid-major. They know the ones that don't quite have all the resources. And I, I think that's really interesting. But um, you know, that really moves the needle where there's maybe a few more opportunities to move the needle if you're Alabama, you know, athletically, academically, it speaks for ourselves, I think. But, um, but you know, the difference is, I, I think, with tennis, it's not as much because tennis players in general, we recruit just like the guys that recruit Alabama. I recruit a lot of smart guys. I had guys making incredible GPAs, doing, doing wonderful things. Um, certainly maybe their degree isn't as strong. It doesn't have the brand of an academic brand of a Princeton. Um, so there's that. I think the biggest difference is the people that you're surrounded by academically. Um, obviously, nobody gets into an Ivy League institution without a serious intellectual curiosity or, you know, showing a lot of uh, ability academically and, and a desire scholastically to really achieve. So that's probably the, the biggest difference. But Everybody around our student athletes are, you know, very interested in the subject matter for the most part, or they, they're, they're not going to just slack off and they, they can't or else they're, you know, they, they'd be out of here. Right. So that's probably the biggest thing, I think. And it's a bigger school. It's a big state school versus a, a private university. Um, but I do love the fact that our guys are truly student athletes. I don't again, I don't think we had that problem. I don't think that problem exists as much in college tennis. Does it exist in other sports, uh, the revenue sports? Yes, of course. I mean, we've made it where it's like it's just so much of a uh, an entry and a pathway to professional sports. And I think I still maintain the amateurism. 
ideology. I really believe in it. I know that's, it was gray 20, 30 years ago. And it's, it's, I don't know if it's even gray anymore. I mean, we're, we're paying athletes by this NIL. And so, and, and it's not to say we can't do that. It, um, like for instance, I, it's, it's very much available to us. And we obviously have some very um, supportive donors um, who have the means, the resources, the connections in the, in the business world that we could, I mean, we, we are, we do have a lot of athletes, you know, taking advantage of NIL deals. I don't think they're anywhere near what some of the power five deals are, but it's helpful. So I think that's the big difference. And obviously we don't do um, scholarships in, in the Ivy league athletic scholarships. So, um, but the financial aid's really good. And so when, when you look at men's tennis, there's only 4.5 scholarships, men's baseball, there's only 11.7 you could still have a roster just like our baseball coach could have a roster and our tennis team where we could actually be exceeding that four and a half in scholarships with the amount of financial aid we're giving out if we're getting the right guy. And we have some, we have some with means that don't need the financial aid, but it could work both ways. So it's actually a very fair process. It's just, I think it's harder in some of the sports to recruit when you don't have an athletic scholarship to offer. It's not as hard in tennis though. In recruiting, Bobby, if I can jump in and recruiting is one thing, because that's you looking at the potential players. I had an 11 year old, 12 year old boy come to me recently and he said, hey, Coach Sean, do you think I can get into Harvard? And I thought, well, I don't know anything about your educational abilities or you know, your intellectual abilities, your grades. I don't know anything about that. I just found out that he's playing tennis and he's a beginner. This is not a good tennis player. He's a beginner. And he's just getting started, but he's playing tennis because he believes that on his college resume, so to speak, on his applications, that it, that adds to his ability to get into that type of school. And then he came in the next week. He said, you know what? I changed my mind, Coach Sean. I'm, I'm thinking it's Duke. I'm thinking Duke is, is now my target. And I said, well, that's great. My stepdaughter just graduated from Duke. He's like, oh, my gosh. Can you please go ask her how she did it? And, and the question is. How do you do that? Is your if you're young? I mean, yeah, if you're a nine year old and you're top ten in the country playing tennis, you got a good chance you're already thinking about college tennis. But if you're an eleven or a twelve year old and you're thinking about going to a, a school like Princeton, is it is it recruiting that matters, or is that twelve year old who may not necessarily be on the team have that still have that chance? Is his ability to play tennis? on his college application, is that helpful at a school like Princeton? Or if you're not going to play college tennis there, it really doesn't matter. No, I think everything's helpful. I, I wouldn't, um, but you would, you could substitute tennis with golf or fencing recreationally or playing the piano or violin. We obviously, a lot of the kids that do enter um, Princeton are very much, um, you know, skilled in the arts, if you will. Um, we have so many guys I've had on my teams here that, that play one or two in, or three or four instruments. It's crazy. Um, speak many languages. So I think diversifying your resume as much as possible is good. Tennis would be one component of it. I tell there's a lot of kids that try to get in on their own without our support. We, we get supported opportunities each year where we can have uh, a number of guys we can list that we will uh, help support for admissions um which is you know obviously lower than maybe what some of the the students or non-athletes getting in but they've given up so much of their life to be a certain level in a sport and the level in tennis has gotten to be for the ivies is so high that i would argue I and mean, we, we have this conversation all the time i tell parents that are you know kids that are maybe eight nine ten years old they they're trying to figure out a pathway for their kid i'm like 
I, I, I can't tell them like what's harder. I mean, it may because you may have injuries, right? You can be really good in tennis nationally when you're 14, but by the time you're 16, what if you kind of fall off a little bit all of a sudden, you know, now you put all this time into it. Maybe you sacrifice some grades because if you're traveling all, most of our guys are traveling all around the U.S. or even all around the globe to pursue their tennis dreams. Um, a lot of them have gone to the online education route or hybrid route to give them the, um, you know, flexibility to miss some classes and, uh, but they have to maintain that. So it, it's a hard thing to do, you know, to, I think tennis is one of the hardest to, to go all in on tennis and decide, okay, I'm going to try to get to XYZ school academically because of my tennis, especially understanding the standard of what we need when all these other things could happen. So what we've actually done, Sean, to your point, like we're, a lot of guys we're recruiting never thought about Ivy's. They weren't, they didn't even have that dream. They just, we actually, and I'm not saying we talk them into it, but if we basically start seeing these kids during their junior year of high school, or maybe right after their sophomore year of high school, and we get their grades or we kind of understand like they weren't looking at Ivy's, but we're like, wow, you could get in if you want to. And then those are, in, but they weren't thinking Ivy's, they were thinking mostly tennis, but they happen to be smart enough. Um, so those are kind of the ones we're seeking, not the ones that from age, whatever they're coming out of the the womb and then all of a sudden a parent's like you're going to an eye you know i don't that that you know then there's too competitive now there's so many people um leveraging whatever skills they have um in every area of life to get into certain schools and and so and then the applications are through the roof so again not to get off point but it's really competitive and it's 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 fun i, I think our admissions people have a really tough job because they want a, a really diverse Cool. And it's like we do. I, I will say this. It's like building a team where they, they want they have, you know, early action here, like early decisions are made in the in the fall. Um, and then obviously they take, I think, around roughly half the class and then they they'll take the rest coming up here, I believe, you know, about now where the regular decision. And so once they get the, the fall um, admits, they kind of know what those look like and then how do they pair them? on campus with all of these, these people. So I think it's, it's like building a team. You want certain cultures, you want certain characters, you want people from all over, from different walks of life. They bring something unique to the university and um, you don't want all of one thing. And, and our team is not all of one thing, nor is our basketball team or football team, which I think is really cool. And it's, it, I think it's more broad and um, diverse than it's ever been, which I think is really neat. And the good part is, I mean, if you look at your, you're still enjoying successes on the court. Just, you know, despite you look at the Rices and, you know, this, even Georgia Tech that always complains, well, we have to maintain our grades and stuff to, to put the same football team out there. You guys are, have the GPA and you're being, you're very successful. Yeah, no, it's great. And I think people fail to recognize that I remember taking a history of American sports class as an undergrad. And, um, you know, the Ivies really were at the, you know, um, they were really the pioneers with um, college athletics as they are today. You know, it was more of a, uh, a privileged group that played athletics. You know, it was truly an amateurism idea at the time. And uh, that's why they've maintained this idea of no athletic scholarships, because they wanted to keep the focus on student athlete. And I think it's great. We have, um, I think, roughly 130 to 140 faculty members that are assigned to, not assigned to teams, but we have, if you look at our, our my coaching page, there's a bunch of other people in there, not only my assistant coaches, but faculty members that support us, they become mentors. So 
it is a, is a former athletic director that developed this, um, you know, sort of program many years ago. And it, it just, you can imagine a school like Princeton where some professors may not want them missing class or why are you playing intercollegiate athletics at this level, but they can go on road trips. They become mentors to our athletes. And when you have now 130, 140 of these faculty members of, across 38, 39 sports, it's really cool. They, they start to see, wow, they, they have 20 plus hours a week toward their sport. Plus they're doing what all the non-athletes are doing. And that's, I think they're, they respect that. So, so it's truly, um, I think the amateurism is well and alive here. I don't know that it is elsewhere, but for our guys to be able to achieve that is really cool. But, but the one thing that's helping us is in, in tennis in general, like people want a great education. Most of the tennis players we recruit, even the ones that won't go Ivy, they maybe could, or they're, they're smart enough if they wanted to. Um, and, uh, we, we don't lack for good recruits. And, and I think everybody wants the best. Bobby, when you and I grew up in Charlotte, same as you, like your parents probably said, just go get a college education maybe. And they didn't, they weren't maybe as focused on, Hey, you have to get an elite level academic education. And now I feel like there's a lot of pressure. I feel bad for kids because there's a lot of pressure on where they go to school. And let's be honest, a lot of the parents want to say their kid went to X, Y, Z, right. Um, versus what's best for that individual. I mean, my parents going, I just hope Sean continues with his school because I, I didn't enjoy school personally. It wasn't fun for me. For me, it was, it was social. It was tennis. It was soccer. It was all the things I was doing. But then I remember getting into college and I remember the other kids, I say like the regular kids, right? The non-athletes. And they were complaining. They just didn't have enough time to finish their work and they couldn't keep up with their studies. I looked at them and said, and you don't play a college sport? Like, how could you possibly not have time to handle all this? I just remember being an athlete and knowing just the schedule was so structured. It was so good for us. We didn't have much time to forget to do something or to just sit around and all of a sudden realize I was late with something. We had so many other pressures and so many other things going on, pushing to say, I got to get this done or I don't make it to my 5 a.m. workout or I don't make it to this. And it was just you got the things done. It was just how it was for the student athletes. And I always just never understood the non-student athletes that didn't seem to have time for all everything they needed to do. Right. You know, and, and the, the, that makes me think it's kind of funny. I've said this before. And, and one of the reasons I was really interested in Princeton, you know, I've, I've always and, and Bobby's known this for a long time. I've always had a fascination of, of, of New York City and living near New York. And I, if I ever had the opportunity to do what I'm doing at the highest level um, and, and live close to New York or in New York, it'd be, it'd be great. And then when Princeton opened up a school, but I, I wanted to pursue it and I did. And, but also there, there were a couple of things at work, you know, we had, we had some, as I said, really smart guys at Alabama and they, they could make a three, four and they could still go out five nights a week. And I'm like, Hmm, they're having a lot of fun. They're chasing the girls or doing what they want. Like, it shouldn't be that easy, you know? And, and I, I was, I was probably one of the worst in college. You know, I, I was, you know, having a too much fun. I was in a frat and as Bobby knows, and, and I, but I didn't want that experience exactly from my student athletes you know I wanted a more serious approach and guys I could I could trust to do the right thing and and not like we didn't have but but you know I think here the guys are just too busy it's too rigorous um it's sort of like what you were saying Sean the time management comes essential and you know the old adage if you want something uh done give it to a busy person and I tell our guys that all the time you know when they think they're um sort of like going up against it academically or they're not sleeping enough and 
Um, they just have to manage it a little bit better. Um, and sometimes they need to take a step back, take a day off, you know, from tennis or take a day off from whatever and just focus on this, get some rest. And, and that we have to do that occasionally, but um, it's really cool how they're able to manage that. And if you really add up the hours in the day, assuming you're sleeping eight hours and, you know, you still have 16 hours and maybe four hours is tennis, but what else are you doing? And you're not in class that much. It's like two or three hours a day. So what they do outside of class is the most important thing. Um, are they playing video games? Probably not that much here. And that's, so they just have a lot less idle time. And so they're able to, uh, you know, um, focus on what's important. And hopefully for us, that's just, you know, uh, school and tennis. Well, you're doing a good job. What does it look like this year for NCAAs? Uh, we're on the bubble right now. We've got a big match with Penn. We start Ivy League play on Saturday, and uh, we are really right. I mean, we we missed an opportunity last uh, week before last year on spring break in San Diego. There's a really good tournament we played with eight teams. We were in the last day. We were playing uh, Virginia Commonwealth, which is actually a really good team. They ranked, ranked roughly around 30. We're in the I think we were in the 40s at the time of. Uh, we were two points for winning and it rained. You know, California's had a, uh, an enormous amount of rain this year. It's been really uh, tough for them, I know. But it, it, it ended up, you know, we, we were joking if we didn't play the national anthem, we would have got it in. And, and so as it turned out, we both had red eyes that night because we had to get back, you know, fly out Sunday night, get back for a class on Monday morning. And um, so neither team could stay an extra day. Um so we waited till about seven o'clock at night. We both both teams had to head to the airport. So we didn't get to finish the match. It was like a no contest. That would have been a, a big one for us. But anyway, we that we were going to make up that match with somebody else. And uh, but we need to kind of probably um, if we don't win the league, obviously, if you win the league, you automatically get a bid. Last year, it was pretty unprecedented. I believe the first time in history, four of them, eight men's uh teams in tennis made the NCAA with us being one of them. So um, it's gotten to be, like I said, an incredibly strong league. So um, we'll see. We've got some work to do. We've got a young team. We lost five seniors. Uh, like I mentioned, a few of them are playing different places. So, But we've got four guys coming this year, only lose two in the fall. So we're we're building something special, we feel like, and we're, we're excited, yeah, especially with a new facility coming. Yeah, well, it's it, it, we've talked about it because I have a, a player that I coach at South Forsyth who was very interested, and I said, "Well, have you spoken to the coach?" And they always get impressed. I said, "Well, do you want me to call him?" And they their eyes light up and they're like, "Well, what you know him?" I'm like, "Well, yeah, we were roommates. Do you want me to call?" Him? And he told me, "He said, well, I can't get in right now. I have 11 plus UTR, and that's not good enough at Princeton. So it it you're you're obviously getting the players." Yeah, but again, that's just happening with, with a number. It's not, and I think it's like anything in life. It's like when you, if you don't, if you apply for a job and you don't get a job, you know, you're, we're all thinking, gosh, what did I do wrong? Or what did, why am I, what are my shortcomings? And, but it, it's what, what I've learned in this whole thing with all these applications we get. And, you know, unfortunately, the answer isn't yes very often for a lot of recruits who maybe want to come. And that's unfortunate, just like the admissions process. But it's not really that person to take it personally as much as who you're being compared against. And maybe this person's a better fit for a job or for this particular team or particular uh, university. So, you know, I think it's just hard for anybody to to see that. But, yeah, it, we're we're getting really good players. We're very fortunate. You know, we, we've we've uh, – 
we like to tell this. We've been number one in undergraduate education for the last 11 years, U.S. News Report, you know, because we're, Princeton's very unique. It's focused on, it's not really known as much for the, the master's programs, the grad programs, the professional schools. We don't really have, we don't have a business school, law school, or med school. It's all focused on the undergrad, really. And so that's why um, your first four years here, which is when you're playing tennis for us, it's great. Uh, and and so that's a lot of what we talk about, but it's very unique. Um but yeah, it's been a great selling point, but all the Ivies have a great selling point. The financial aid for all these universities has grown. So for some people who maybe think, okay, they don't offer athletic scholarships, I won't be able to afford to go. If they can get in, they're likely to qualify um, because it, the, the financial aid packages are so generous. They want, I feel like they want to give them out to the right people. It's just a matter of them justifying it and obviously getting in, depending on whether that's athletics or um, without athletics. Sean, I, I know we're getting close on time. Billy, I, a, I, I want to say thanks again. This, this is a person who's been such a big impact on my life. I still quote by various Billy Pates when you're breaking down a match. Billy told me, look, 40, you're, honestly, you're competing over 10% of the match. We could start in the beginning, 45% going to each side. I try to tell my players that. I remember when I went into high performance, I called Billy. I said, Billy, I have been coaching high performance. What do I do? Billy, you know, sat down, sent me a list of, which I still have, of drills to use specifically more high performance oriented, but emphasized that the high performance is in the situation, in the effort, not any magical drill. So such a huge part of my life. I'm going to call Junior and let him know that Penn's playing this weekend. Maybe he'll send you a text and uh, start a little rivalry there. And, uh, you know, again, thanks for coming on next time. We'll, we'll spend a little bit more time on, on the good times because I still love the, the big Vike stories and we have to make an origin story of that at some point. I, I can't take credit. That's a Hoover, but, uh, we had a lot of good times and, and thank you for spending time with us today. Sean, take it away with our last question. We've got one question we like to ask everyone. And I've been looking forward to this one a lot because of your experience, you know, Atlanta, and uh, you know Bobby, so you probably know why even the why we're asking a question like this. But I want to give it to you. If you were king of tennis for a day or however long for a certain thing, whether it's college tennis, social tennis, professional tennis, tennis of the universe, whatever it is, if you were king of tennis. Is there any one thing, or is there any anything you would change or adjust to make tennis better for anyone in any way? You get king of tennis. You get one thing you can do. What would it be? Yeah, I think uh, you you guys have seen the success of the Labor Cup. Uh, I think the problem, and Bobby said this many years ago. I, I you know, he remembers like everything I said, and even if it was uh, BS, he seems to remember everything I said back in the day. Maybe I had too many uh, adult beverages, but um, Bobby always said, you know, we're we're too focused in tennis on promoting the players and not the sport. And if you think about it, you know, team sports, if it, I use this analogy, I'm, we're, I'm right between Philly and New York, but if you're, you know, if you're in Philadelphia and the, the worst guy on the Phillies walks into a, a restaurant, somebody knows him and they're like, hey, that's that guy's on the Phillies. He's a major league baseball. He might be 700 in the world in baseball. If you're 700 in the world in tennis, you're playing college tennis. So, you know, I think the team approach is really good because it can showcase so many guys. I mean, how many... When you when you watch a football game, a baseball game, basketball, game, how many hockey, how many guys are being showcased? 
where when tennis is on TV, typically, I mean, obviously, tennis channel is doing a good job. Maybe midweek, you, you see some early round matches and people get to know some other players. But again, it goes back to that thing I said with Atlanta sports or tennis fans, you know, understanding the 50 guy in the world can be just as good as the one guy in the world on a given day. Or, or what, what, if you're a 4 0 player, you're not going to see the subtlety and those differences. So I think making it more team oriented, um, getting fans around the world to embrace the idea um, of these teams and taking a part of the, the ATP uh, and WTA calendar and making more team events. Um, the, the, the calendar is grueling enough and you know, they've made some changes to Davis Cup, but I, I really, I really think, you know, a lot of the events around the world, let's be honest, they're, they're not, they have a tough time getting people on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday to come to matches. Yeah. You see the finals, it's packed, but um, I think with the exception of a few events, I think um, some of these events are struggling financially. So make it more of a team event. You involve more people. Um, you know, you showcase the sport at a, at a greater level. And then we need more um, uh, exposure via whether it's even streaming. You know, I know we talk a lot about linear TV. That's really important. We talked about that a lot in college tennis, but the streaming, it should be a good streaming. It should be the ability for anybody to get tennis live any any time. So I think those two things are, are super important. Um, if I were king of tennis, that's what I would I would try to do, make it more team oriented. That's coming from a college coach where I believe in culture and um, team camaraderie and being a little bit more unselfish. And uh, but I I think we tennis needs more of that. I knew we'd get a good answer out of you. I really appreciate it. And, uh, <laughs> Bobby, Billy, I know you guys could talk forever, but uh, let's schedule another time because uh, I know we've got. Plenty of questions, plenty of stories to tell. And yeah. we will uh, we will make sure we get you in, especially we want to talk again after the college season, see how it went. And then also ask, I've got a bunch of questions about what Universal Tennis is doing uh, with stream. You said streaming is a good thing. They're doing the national championships or the NIT on Prime and they're doing some cool stuff. And we want to kind of get your get your thoughts on a lot of that. But we didn't even get to ask him about VR tennis. Well, that's the thing. We got to go talk to those guys right now. Um, but we really appreciate your time, Billy, and we will definitely stay in touch. I know you talk to Bobby a lot, so I'm sure you won't be very far away. Yeah, great, guys. I really appreciate what you're doing for tennis, and I really appreciate you having me on. It's great. It's a great endeavor you have, and I wish you all the best. Mike, I'm proud of you. Oh, thank you. Proud of you guys. Well, there you have it. We want to thank Rejuvenate for use of the studio, and be sure to hit that follow button. Also, we've been nominated for a podcast award, the best tennis podcast. For more about that, check the show notes. And with that, we're out. See you next time.